Welcome to the Kitchen Sink meeting of Overeaters Anonymous. Please note, we will be holding this meeting via Zoom for the foreseeable future. If you'd like to attend the meeting live, go to oalaig.org for login information. And now, our speaker. My name is Michael. <laughs> I'm a compulsive eater. And um, I talked to my sponsor before and read the inventory um, that I take uh, on a nightly basis, a short inventory. And that's not, sometimes it's kind of long, huh, Gerald? But uh, I just, you know, I don't know about you, but when you're speaking, uh, you want to be perfect or I want to be perfect. And I want to, you know, I just want to, my ego's involved a little bit. So anyway, I came to you guys a long, long time ago, even you know, almost as long as Carol has been here. Um, in the early 80s, uh, I was blessed with a year of sobriety and uh, through another program. And uh, I, I had a three-pack-a-day cigarette addiction. And uh, I couldn't stop smoking. And I started to bitch and complain about it at my AA meetings. And uh, my fellow alcoholics told me to shut up. And uh, all they cared about was my drinking. And I thought they were rather rude. I thought you could talk about anything in AA, and uh, somebody tried to explain the traditions and how we concentrate on our primary purpose. And in my primary purpose in this program is to stop eating compulsively, refrain from those compulsive behaviors, and to try to help somebody who's trying to do the same. Um, if I get all scattered, which I tend to do on a daily basis, it narrows the focus and it really doesn't reach us. It really doesn't carry the message as strongly as I could. So anyways, this somebody told me to go to Smokers Anonymous in those days, and their primary purpose was to stay abstain from smoking cigarettes. I went, I bitched, I complained, and after six weeks, the three-pack-a-day cigarette habit was removed from me. It was miraculous. Um, I only problem was I put on 30 pounds in 30 days, and it wasn't the first time I compulsively was overeating, but it was the first time I was aware of it because I wasn't smoking and I wasn't drinking, I wasn't using, and I was like a raw nerve. And so I went back to my AA home group. I said, what are you doing? I can't. And they said, don't you understand? I don't want to hear about haagen I don't want to hear about eggnog shakes. I don't want to hear about taquitos. I don't want to eat pizza. Just stop it. I, again, they were rude to me. But I knew that there was Overeaters Anonymous, and I came to you guys. But I wasn't going to tell you that I needed help because I wanted to figure it out my Myself, just like I want to time myself. I always have the illusion of control. I don't know about you compulsive overeaters, but life can be kind of chaotic. Have you noticed what's going on out there? And I want to have a little bit of control, but you guys tell me I don't have any control. And um, so anyway, long story short, after about a year gaining more and more weight, finally got beaten down. My name is Michael. I'm a compulsive overeater. I don't know how to do this. I need help. Matt M., that masterman, may he rest in peace, uh, over a 100-pounder, gave me his phone number and told me to call him. And I, I was impressed. He lost over a 100 pounds. And I called him, and he asked me what I was going to eat, and I, I had no idea. And he said, Michael, why don't you call me uh, at the end of the evening and tell me what you ate? And having to be accountable uh, to somebody else who I trusted uh, started the magic of this program. I have no idea what I ate all those years ago, but I know that it was probably cleaner than what I was eating. And I had the courage 
to tell it to be honest with my food. And I didn't want to be honest with anybody, let alone myself. And slowly but surely, he got me into the habit. He trained me to take a fifth step with my food. Those of you who are new, the fifth step, and it's, you know, I don't know. I had to be, the first step I had to realize that I couldn't do this alone, right? But he, I jumped all the way to the fifth step, which was admitting to God, to myself, and another human being, to the best of my honesty, the exact nature of my food, what I was putting in my body. And I still do that uh, on a daily basis all these years ago. And it holds me in good stead, the accountability. And it keeps me relatively honest in, in what I'm putting into my body. So, um, all right, so I started to do the deal with you guys. And um, a little bit about my background. Um, I... Um, um, I come from a, my mother. Now here's, here's the unmanageability of life on life's terms, guys. My mom and dad uh, got married, I guess, in the late forties. And they, um, you know, my mom was a concert pianist. She had a scholarship to Juilliard. My dad was a good looking, you know, good guy. And they waited five years before they had me. They wanted to make sure their marriage was intact, that everything was okay. And then I came along five years later. And then my mother suffered from something called postpartum uh, depression, which is relatively common, I guess, for women after they have kids. But hers never went away. Hers developed into postpartum psychosis and eventually uh, full-blown schizophrenia in the early 50s. They diagnosed her. And uh, she started suicide attempts, and they spent a lot of money in private doctors and everything uh, to no avail. And um, in the early 50s, they had an operation called a lobotomy, and they cut that part of your brain that they thought was diseased, and they thought you would get better. My mother was the first in line. She wanted that. She was just miserable. Um, with the suicide attempt, she had all kinds of shock treatments, and she finally had the lobotomy, and it didn't make her make her any better, but it didn't make her any worse. And so my um, remembrances of her as a kid were, um, you know, we'd go to Patton State Hospital in San Bernardino and visit her on the weekends, and sometimes she'd just be crying and hu hug me and say, Michael, you know, I'm going to come home, I'm going to take care of you, and other times she'd be like catatonic, and she'd look at my father and go, you son of a bitch, she'd slap him, and i go, oh, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, so as a kid, I was relatively um, afraid. Now, I've heard compulsive eaters that had Father knows best existences, and, and they were as fearful as I was. So I don't think that caused my compulsive overeating, but I, I'm sure it added a little fuel to the fire. And so I went to the food to anesthetize from a very, very early age. Um, I guess I was blessed with the metabolism that didn't put on any weight. I was a skinny kid. I can remember, but I was always obsessed with, with how I looked, how I was coming up off to you. I remember in about the second grade, I was walking home and I was ashamed of my arms and I thought I walked funny and it just felt like everybody was looking at me, 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 me. And so that's an early memory of self-obsession. When I went to college, um, I weighed like 125, 130 pounds. I was a theater arts major, and I I had the part of a munchkin in The Wizard of Oz, a summer program. I went to L.A. City College Theater Academy there, and they measured my waist, and I had like a 27, a 28 waist or something. And 
I really was having a good time, but when it was time to socialize during the breaks in rehearsal, people would uh, uh, meet in the break room and they'd be self-upset. They were really, they were outward type people. I wasn't like that. So I found Foster Freeze on the corner and I found eggnog shakes and I found taquitos. And they were much more satisfying than going and socializing and letting those people know who I really was. So by the end of that run, I guess it was a two-month thing. It was a summer thing. I, I was a 36 waist, and I was up to 180 pounds. And I was kind of happy because I thought that if I had a little girth on me, that I would be sort of like a football, you know, women would look. I don't know what I thought. I thought a lot, and I still do, ladies and gentlemen. So anyway, that was uh, my first remembrance of compulsive overeating. Um, all right, I came to you. The weight came off relatively easy. Um, I thought I had problems other than compulsive overeating, and um, I started um, – I didn't want to get up and go to work uh, in the morning, you know. I don't know about you guys. I, I have a wonderful job. I love what I do. I just don't like to get out of bed in the morning, even on vacation. I love to stay in bed. Um, so I would call my sponsor, and um, I would tell him that uh, I uh, didn't want to get out of bed, and I wanted to quit my part-time job. I, by the way, never had a full-time job until I was 43 years old. The company I worked for asked me to commit to full-time, and I told them that I couldn't because I was an actor, and I needed to be available for auditions. So I would leave that job at noon, and I'd go to the beach, and I'd work on my tan. And I wouldn't go to auditions, by the way. Nothing really came my way. Nobody, you know. So, but the beach was kind of fun. So uh, I'd call and bitch and complain to my sponsor. This is a do-nothing job. Then I got Richie as a sponsor. I don't know if you, you old-time, long-timers remember Richie. He talked with a New York accent. He was a working actor. He actually made money working. And I talked to Richie, and I'd go, God, I'm just filing on this job. It's just so mundane. And I And he says, well... He says, why don't you go to auditions? Why don't you get into a play after work? And I go, Richie, I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm just, he says, there are plenty full-time actors that work full-time and they go and they do plays at night. What's the matter with you? And I thought, well, he's being kind of mean, but he was right and he was resonating. Years later, there was a, a well-known actor in my group and uh, I met him at Foster Freeze, by the way, abstinently. I wasn't eating eggnog shakes at that time. And I thought he was going to listen to my story and he was going to say, oh, Mike, I have an agent for you. It's really, really easy. And I told him, you know, that my lifelong dream. And I said, what did you do, Kevin? And Kevin said, Mike, I went to any lengths to get a job. I would steal the theater tickets. I'd do anything. I was obsessed. And I was not obsessed. And I realized kind of at that time that I was not going to be an actor. So anyway, uh, what had happened was I got really involved in uh, psychotherapy. And uh, and I would get, they would tell me to get, uh, explore my feelings and to get angry. And, and then I'd come to you guys and you'd say, get rid of your resentments. Get rid of your anger. Go help somebody that needs help and get out of yourself. And I didn't, couldn't figure it out. I was, well, I like getting angry. I really like getting angry. I still kind of do that self-righteous anger. Makes me a little hungry, though. But um, so I made the decision on my own 
because I wasn't calling a sponsor consistently at the time, uh, to get into the psychotherapy because my mom, I thought when I didn't want to get out of bed in the morning, I might have a, a chemical imbalance. I might have a psychological problem. After all, my mom was schizophrenic. So uh, stopped calling my sponsor, ended up with three therapists, and I think I've got five minutes. Um, and um, so... Um, yeah, and so I left you guys, and consequently, I had a slip in my other program. And I don't know about you, because I'm also an alcoholic. So, I mean, if I start drinking today, I, I lose my abstinence, or if I start popping pills. So, um, when I came back, I heard um, um, Dr. Paul, who uh, I don't know if the big book uh, is uh, ordained literature for Overeaters Anonymous, but I always wanted to hear him, because he was in that other program's book. And uh, he gave a talk that said never in his 20-some-odd years did he have a problem to which uh, the uh, steps didn't offer a solution. And I was so far away from you guys and so far away from the steps that uh, I just uh, it resonated with me. And I was too afraid to ask him for his phone number, but I asked his wife, Max, and uh, I started calling him. And slowly but surely, he got me back into the 12 steps he got me uh, away from the psychotherapy because at the time I couldn't handle both. And uh, and I trusted him. And I got involved uh, in my my other program in a very structured and disciplined home group. And they believed in strong sponsorship. And you only have one sponsor. And up until that time, I had a sponsor, but I was asking everybody their opinions on what I should do. And the one that came closest to what I thought I should do, I took their suggestion rather than just having one sponsor. So uh, my home group and that other program alleviated that stuff for me. And then I knew that my heart and soul was in Overeaters Anonymous. And I went to my other sponsor and I said, you know, I got to I got to go back there because I don't want to compulsively eat. And he said, kid, if you've tried every diet, you know, you know, you do what you got to do. And I said, but you know what? You need a sponsor in that program. And I knew he was going to tell me no, but he said, yes. He says, I don't have that problem, kid. Go ahead and do what you need to do to take care of yourself. So uh, Richie, uh, may he rest in peace, was my sponsor in this program. And God bless him. He listened to three days of inventory of my fifth step. He said, it took me three days to give my inventory, so I'll listen to your shit. And um, and he did. And uh, and I'd call him almost on a daily basis. But on weekends, he'd say, Michael, give me a reprieve. I don't want to hear from you on weekends. So Carl, who I think is on this meeting, uh, took my phone calls on the weekends. And at that time, I was uh, beginning to teach, and I was scared to death. And I'd give him my food, and if the... His machine was on. He'd say, Michael, I'm glad you're giving me your food, but what's going on with you? Even though I'm not here, go ahead and talk about what you're feeling. And so I would uh, mess with Carl's serenity on weekends, and I got through uh, through that period of fear. I'm abstinent, and I didn't have to anesthetize myself with food. And Carl, they haven't found me out. Um, if, they, if they don't find me out for 25 years, Carl, that's, I've been in the same profession. And that's a direct miracle of, of Overeaters Anonymous and the, and the, the steps of this program. Um, 
what can I tell you? Uh, I'm an only child, like I told you. My kids, my my parents didn't have any children after me, but uh, God has blessed me with a fertile abstinence. I have one child from a previous marriage who's now 43. We went to thanks post Thanksgiving dinner over there last night, and I've got three grandchildren. And from my current wife, hopefully it'll be my last wife, because those of you who have done this more than once. If you're like me, you know that you take yourself to every relationship that you go to. So all the Mishigas that I dealt with with my first wife, I'm dealing with my second wife. And as my sponsor reminds me, Christine is not the problem. Problem stems from my spiritual malady. And so thank God for my sponsor who does the majority of the work and gets way too much credit because, you know, he'll tell you if he ever speaks that he's spoken all over the world. Thank you, Terrell, for being humble. But anyway, I love you, Terrell, and I'll say that in public, and thank God that you're here. He might be moving. Um, he's going to retire. I'm not taking his pitch or inventory, but it's scary. But, you know, in other countries, they have telephones, and um, and they also have uh, texting. So Terrell, wherever he is, allows me to text and to contact him. And, uh, and bottom line, ladies and gentlemen, Terrell's doing the same thing I am. Uh, we all, lack of power is our dilemma, and we're trying to contact that, that higher self, which uh, allows us not only to abstain from compulsive eating, but in retrospect, have a really, really rich, full life. I'm the, time. Thank you very much, Mark, and let's move on to the next event. Thank you for listening to me. Okay. There is no break at this meeting. The LA Intergroup requests that you continue to contribute as we still have operating expenses, including the subscription costs of this service. Please go to donate.oalaig.org for a direct link to our PayPal account, and please specify your supporting kitchen sink. Any amount is appreciated. Um, I have asked Raj to read the 12 traditions for us this morning. Raj? Yes, hi everyone. It's uh, Raj, compulsive O-Reader. The 12 traditions of uh, O-Readers Anonymous. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for a group conscience, uh, rather for a group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in a group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group should have one but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, 
Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is a spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you, Raj. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. If you have a question, please click the raise your hand icon. The secretary will call on you and you can then unmute and ask your questions. So... Vincent. All right. Thank you, Michael. Um, the first question comes from Nancy B. My name is Nancy Beach, and I am an alcoholic. Um, Are you a I've compulsive eater, in... Nancy? I, oh, God. I'm thinking about PG when I saw you in that suit. That's Hi. Why. Hi, Nancy. Sorry, you imitated Clancy. Hi, Nancy. Uh, my name is Nancy Beach. I'm a compulsive overeater. I've been an Overeaters Anonymous for 44 years, maintaining 150-pound weight loss. And happy birthday to the beautiful darling Judy Hollis for 46 years today, um, this week. Um, Michael, I've had the honor of being in the front row when every one of your sponsors walked in. And you're in God's grace from who you were able to pick and who taught you. Would you share with this room today right now, because I believe that half the people here aren't convinced they really need to be here. Would you share about surrender and the things you do on a daily basis and talk a little more about structure, because they may not know what that really means and what you put into this. Would you kind of tell them a little about the doctor's opinion and how it says that if we don't do this, we could go to jail or die? Yeah. Now just tell us a little more about the severity of this disease sure, and Nancy. what you do. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the question. So I'm not a 100-pounder. I didn't have uh, 100 pounds to lose. But I sponsored 100-pounders. And um, so I've been doing this for a while, and I have a guy who just passed away from COVID. And uh, he struggled with the disease for many, many years. And uh, I would get impatient with him. And I would think that it was a moral issue and my ego was involved. And why isn't he listening to me? But this person had a hard time getting sober. It took him 11 years to get clean and sober. But he finally got clean and sober and he was doing the deal. So Terry taught me patience, tolerance, kindness, and love. And he was starting to get this program until he called a couple of weeks ago and he said, I've lost 30 pounds. I have pneumonia. And, uh, and because he was extremely obese, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but I know that COVID gets you in your vulnerable place. And uh, he passed away and we lost him. So that brought the message home to me. Now, even though I haven't lost a hundred pounds, I wake up, I've got a hundred pound head and I wake up uh, uh, even after doing this for all these years with a very, very busy, vulnerable, negative head. And that in itself uh, gets me to meetings. I had a slip. I have gone out. I know what it's like to be um, clean food-wise, but crazy, 
crazy, crazy, crazy. And I don't want to feel that way. So I either go to the Haagen-Dazs and the pizza and, the, and anesthetize myself with food, or I make the phone call in the morning. God has blessed me with people, guys that call me in the morning. We call it the party line. And for a half an hour, you know, we BS a lot. We take the inventory. We read spiritual literature, and we actually pray. You know, we say the third step prayer. We say the seventh step prayer. We ask God, you know, what we what we would like today so that we can help our higher power. And uh, I don't remember what I asked God for, but I asked my sponsor for a mantra on a daily basis. And I can't remember what it is. That's why I keep coming back. I also... Um, suffer from CRS. I don't know if you guys do it. It's a, it might, might be an outside issue, but CRS stands for can't remember shit. And so I have to keep coming back to you guys so that I can have a modicum of serenity. So I talked about the prayer. I talked about the meditation. I talked about the contact with you guys. Telephone calls for me after doing this for 30 plus years are medicine for me. Um, reaching out, uh, even though I've been doing this for a while, if I reach out to somebody new, Raj, it's always good to talk to you, and I'm glad, I appreciate you reaching out to me, but I need to reach out to newcomers as well. And so I've made the practice of looking in the chat and seeing if people are new. It's not easy when you're new to do this. I, I don't want to do this. So if you get a call or if I get a call from somebody who's done this before, it just makes me feel good. Um, I've, I'm going to mention one more thing. I'm going to go to another qu- uh, uh, question. So I've been taught you show up, you do the structure, you do the discipline. I hate that, by the way, Nancy. That goes uh, 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 opposite of my disease, but I love it and, uh, and I need it for my recovery. There's a guy that just w- doesn't like to speak, and he just he's got a phobia about it, and I sponsor him, and he should do it my way. But he's really, really tried. He's gone to Toastmasters. He's gone everywhere. And everybody, when he does speak, tells him what, how great he is. He will not believe it. He cannot or will not believe me. And I'm right. So my sponsor told me to leave him alone. The guy gives service. The guy is abstinent. And he's, a, he's just a good guy. So anyway, I learn uh, on a daily basis, even when I don't want to. So anyway, I'm, I want to make time for other questions. So thank you for your question, Nancy. Thank you, Michael. Uh, Julie? Thanks, Michael. Um, When you get into that indignant anger and feel robbed and owed, is there a particular tool or step or tradition that you work to get you out of it? Yeah, uh, the fifth step helps. I admit it to myself, to God, to another human being. I, I don't always want to get rid of it because it feels so good, that self-righteous anger, especially, you know, my wife or, you know, a guy that I sponsor. But I ask God, this is kind of cool, Julian. This really works. It just seems stupid, though. When I was smoking three packs a day, an old-timer said, Michael, ask God for the willingness to be willing to, to give it up. And I thought, that guy's crazy. But I asked for the willingness to be willing to give it up. And then I have to take an action as well. And uh, even if it's a small action, if it's being quiet and not saying what I think to my wife, um, calling a newcomer. But, but including God in the equation, ask God for the willingness to be willing, um, God takes care of me. So that's a little simple tool that I use in taking a contrary action as well. Thanks for the question. Thank you. Uh, Lacey. 
Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for your share. Um, I also have a 100-pound head. Um, I wanted to know how, how do you still hate getting up in the morning, and what does your day start like? This morning, I hated getting up. You know, it's warm in bed, and I keep setting my timer for a while, and I had an adequate amount of uh, sleep. And, uh, yeah, so what happened? Somebody called, or did I call my sponsor? It's, no, somebody called me this morning, and um, and I talked to that person, and I started to read from the spiritual reading, and he was so busy that he had to hang up. And then I called and my sponsor and I read my inventory and I read to him and there was music playing in the background and there was all kinds of activity going on. And I, and he said, well, I'm at a neighbor's house. I can't turn this down. I'm at a friend's house. And I said, can't you tell him that I'm on the phone? And he said, that's why the music is turned up, Michael. So anyway, I have to get into action. And both people on the phone were into action. And I can act your way into right thinking. I can't think my way into right action. So the minute I get up, and I don't know about you, um, on my worst days, when I get and do a little bit, I have like my best day. So it's something about action, contrary action. But I still love bed, you know. So that's my deal with that. Excellent. Thank you, Michael. Uh, Thomas. Good morning. Uh, what do you want? Oh, go no, go ahead, Thomas. Ask your question. Do I introduce myself? My name's Thomas. I'm a no, you don't have to do that if you listen to the format. What? Uh, What's your question? Dang it. Hurry up. Thank you. Thank you for a great talk, Michael. And, you know, um, thank you for talking about Terry. May he rest in peace. Uh, what would you say to, you know, people, guys that you sponsor who just don't want to do what their sponsors tell them to do on a regular basis and don't want to follow the directions and just work this program imperfectly and, you know, have trouble being consistent with it. Nobody works it as – thank you, Thomas, for the question. And, by the way, I sponsored uh, Thomas. So I don't know about you. I have three character defects, self-righteous, arrogant, and control. And I think I can get away with it with my sponsees. And it doesn't work because that's how my gruff sponsor was with me. So when I get into that place, and it really hurts me probably more than it does them, I just have to surrender, and I have to bitch and complain about them to my sponsor, and they tell me to be patient. Um, my, I've only, I don't know, I, I, I don't like to fire people. It messes with my ego. And the only uh, people that I let go to that I can remember is when my sponsor gave me direction to do it. So I uh, have to work with self-compassion, self-patience, self-tolerance, self-love. So how can I do that when I'm not being that way to the people that I sponsor? By the way, compassion, self-compassion and self-esteem, at least intellectually, self-esteem is based on my actions. So I'm trained in my other group. You act your way into esteemable acts and everything. But what happens when I don't want to act my way into a state. What happens when I want to stay in bed? Well, compassion sort of overrides that no matter what you're doing. You know, you know, God loves me no matter what. So if I have a little of that self-compassion for myself, then I can pass it on to you, Thomas, because I love you so much. Love you too. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> Who's next? <laughs> on that note, uh, Jessica F. 
Hi, Michael. Thank you so much. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to you this morning. Thank you. Um, you mentioned this already in, in some fashion, but I'm in that other program, too. And I'm wondering if, you know, if you struggled at all and how you managed feeling like one was more serious than this disease and how to take it as seriously um, in the beginning. They're both um, killers. And um, I was trained structure and discipline in that other program so that when I show up to you, I realize whether I believe it or not that um, you're saving my life. And so when I'm representing, I'm, you know, I'm taught to dress up a little bit and to act better than I feel. Terry, may he rest in peace, has taught me that this is a killer disease. Uh, by the way, I have five minutes according to my time left. My, uh, my sponsor in the other program wasn't as patient as my sponsor in this program. I always joke that Terrell does all the work and my other sponsor, may he rest in peace, got all the credit because, um, so, um, I do the majority of my work in Overeaters Anonymous and, uh, um, and, and that's a good thing. And, and to work on balance and not um, playing one sponsor against the other, you know. Um, my sponsors are very wise, and when I do that, they call me on my stuff. So they're both um, important to me. I assume that, um, um, I don't know, I ran out. I'm intellectualizing this, but uh, but I've been doing this for a while, and um, and I take both programs seriously. And I have been blessed, by the way, to people who see my abstinence in the other program and they need help, they'll come to me. And um, so you're blessed as well that if you stay abstinent and work with other people, that you might be able to help people in the other program as well. Thank you. Right. Thank you, Michael. Uh, Nancy V. Hey, Michael. Um, thank you so much for your share. Uh, yeah, my, my question to you is, can you talk a little bit about your um, relationship with your higher power, how it's evolved in the 30 years that you've been in program? Thanks. Well, it uh, comes and it goes, and um, I keep working at it. I think I'm more connected than I have ever been in my 30 years. Um, but I believe that when the fear comes up and life on life's terms hits me, that's a wake-up call from my higher power that uh, I can either go to the food or I can go to God. And I have to do it through you, um, through coming to meetings, having a commitment at meetings. Um, I believe I went a few years ago. I thought that because I was born into the Jewish religion and I never was a practicing Jew, as Clancy, as um, Richie reminded me, I didn't want to get on my knees in the beginning and pray. I said, Richie, you know, Jews don't get on their knees. And he said, Michael, I just heard your fifth step. Since when have you ever been a practicing Jew? So, but I always felt guilty because I got bar mitzvah and I never felt it. So I went back a couple of years ago and and I got bar mitzvah again, and uh, and I thought, oh, you know, now I'm going to get connected to my religion of origin. But it didn't work that way with me. When I was taking the lessons, um, all the Torah stuff and all that biblical stuff. The only way I could understand it was through the eyes of the 12 steps. And through the 12 steps, I was able to comprehend a lot of that stuff. 
And, and not just my religion, but the Catholic religion, Buddhist, Hindu, it opens my eyes up to everything. My sponsor claims, you know, he's an atheist. And I go, oh, well, how can you not believe in God? And he says, well, I believe in compassion and patience and tolerance and love. And, and well, that's God. Call it atheism. It's God. So anyway, I have my own conception of my higher power and, uh, and who loves me no matter what. And um, when I'm in the fear, I don't believe it. You know, it sounds like Pollyanna bullshit to me. And my sponsor keeps lovingly, the atheist, reminds me <laughs> that there is a compassionate, loving, higher power out there that wants me to feel good about myself and just to stop all the, all the character defects that separate me from that compassionate, higher power. And you guys help me with that as well. Thank you for the question. All right. Thank you, Michael. I think we have time for one more question. Uh, Don. Um, one minute Michael, what do you want, Don? <laughs> you can figure out who my sponsor is. Um, good job, Michael. Would you, you've talked in pieces about it, but would you talk specifically about how being a sponsor helps you with your program? Well, because it makes me walk like I talk. How many times have we talked, Don? And, and I don't know. I, I love to 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 catch my sponsees and their character defects. But, yeah, I mean, if I'm not doing what I'm – uh, telling or suggesting that my sponsors sponsees do, I get hungry and uh, I'm still vain. I don't want to put on any weight, and uh, so yeah, they help me going into that little pamphlet, the, working in the big book. It, it reacquaints me with the literature because again, my CRS I forget really really easy, and also it just really feels good to see people. Um, working this pro, it validates that this program works for me. When, you know, you know, they say the spark comes in your eye and you see the weight eventually starting to come off. It just validates that there is a God. So sponsees are a, also a direct connection to a higher power for That's me. Time. Except for Malik. Okay. Thank you. <laughs>